Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jennifer Rosner. She's an assistant professor at Fuller Theological Seminary and also teaches at Azusa Pacific University. She's the author of Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel, and she has a new book out, Healing the Schism. Karl Barth, Franz Rosenweg, Rosenzweig, and the New Jewish Christian Encounter, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Rosner. Thanks, Mark. It's an honor to be here. Well, let, let, uh, the title word. What is the schism that you that you cite in your title? Yeah, I mean, the schism, broadly speaking, would be sort of the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity, which, you know, I would argue uh, is kind of happening in the second, third, fourth centuries and the legacy of which we are left with ever since in this um, era where Judaism and Christianity have come to define themselves in mutual exclusion from one another as kind of completely separate uh, religious traditions uh, and that are contradictory in many ways. And so um, the, the title of my book actually comes, which probably a lot of people don't know this, from the last chapter of Mark Kinzer's first book. Mark Kinzer is a Messianic Jewish theologian who has been a mentor to me um, and, and, and was very influential in this book uh, project. And uh, the last chapter of his first book, which was called Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism, is called Healing the Schism. And so in, in some way, I'm trying to uh, kind of wrestle with some of the same questions that Mark is wrestling with, uh, maybe even in some way pick up where he left off in that book and, uh, and, and work towards healing this schism between Judaism and Christianity. When, when was that book? Uh, Mark's book. Yes. Mark's first book was published in 2005, uh, okay. which was actually just a couple years before I started working on this project. Uh, Healing the Schism is actually the published version of my doctoral dissertation uh, when I was a doctoral student at Fuller Seminary, uh, and Mark was on my committee. Mark Kinzer was on my committee. So this book uh, actually was published, my book was published for the first time in 2016 by Fortress Press and now has been republished uh, by Lexham Press. That's what just released uh, summer of 2021. Got it. Um, so yeah, so Mark has been a big influence on my thought, was a big part of this project. And so the title is just sort of this little tribute in, in some ways to his work as well. Nice, nice. Uh, a quick definition. What is supersessionism? Yeah, supersessionism uh, comes from the word to supersede. Um, and it, you know, there's different ways that it plays out in Christian theology. Uh, but in, in, in any of these different varieties, it's sort of positing in some way that God's covenant with the church through Jesus Christ 
supersedes uh, or replaces God's covenant with the people of Israel. So supersessionism is often referred to as replacement theology. Again, the idea that the church somehow replaces God's covenant with Israel. Um, and it's very prominent throughout the history of Christian theology and in Christian theology today. Uh, and I think it's important to say it, it's not always malicious. Um, it's not always even conscious, uh, but it's so deeply built into the fundamental structure of much of Christian theology, again, over the centuries and today. Um, it's sort of just like the air that we breathe in the world of Christian theology, um, and and thankfully is, is being called into question from a lot of different um, angles today. Okay. And part of this new conversation that you refer to is is let, let, let's let's think a whole lot differently about this mm-hmm. and is this a conversation that started in the 20th century it did there were some uh, i would say there were some precursors but in this book i sort of trace uh, the what i would consider to be this the, the the sort of major origins of what i call the new jewish christian encounter which i think is very much playing out in our day and I look to two 20th century thinkers, Karl Barth on the Christian side and Franz Rosenzweig on the Jewish side, uh, as, as really significant kind of precursors and pioneers of this new encounter between Jews and Christians, between, in some ways, rethinking the relationship between Judaism and Christianity as, tra- as religious traditions. Um, and so then in the book, I, I kind of track this trajectory that, that I'm saying, yeah, in a significant way, begins with Barth and Rosenzweig. Uh, and then and then you have this whole host of kind of post-Holocaust thinkers who are influenced by them. And, and I look at and trace the ways that that is playing out, again, kind of in their shadows in a significant way. Uh, you know, early on in the book, you, you have a phrase, you cite a scholar, uh, a phrase that begins with, uh, I don't know if it would go so far as to say this is a reconceptualization of mm-hmm. of Jesus, but the term is, uh, the phrase is, the Jew who sits at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. Is that is that sort of a beginning conception of this new conversation? In some ways it is, because a huge part of this conversation is uh, in rethinking Judaism and Christianity, sort of at the heart of that is rethinking the person of Jesus. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's this whole sort of sweeping movement, uh, I would say, in, in our day, in the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st century, of kind of reclaiming the, the Jewishness of Jesus. And you see that in Pauline scholarship, you see it in gospel scholarship, um, you see it in, you know, New Testament scholarship more broadly. Um, you see it in theology with, with people like Thomas Torrance, for example. Um, and so, yeah, the thought that, like, it's not just that Jesus sort of was a Jew in, in some maybe irrelevant or kind of antiquated way, but if Jesus has like a resurrected body, then Jesus is, is a Jew, like he's still a Jew. And so part of what I'm pressing into in the book and part of what I think uh, a whole kind of trend of scholarship is pressing into is like, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus the Jew to be sort of sitting at the right hand of the Father? And, and what significance can we draw from that in our understanding, not only of Christianity, but also of Judaism. Are there many uh, Christian thinkers, Protestant or, or Catholic, who would bristle at that characterization at this point? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I think that more and more, um, probably Protestant and Catholic scholars are 
um, in some way espousing, yeah, the significance of, of Jesus matters, the, the, the Jewishness, the significance of Jesus' Jewishness matters. Um, but, but I think they would go in different directions with that. Um, and, and you see, you, you know, there's, it, it's fascinating, actually, there's many different ways that this plays out. So for example, James Cone, you know, this sort of classic uh, pillar of black theology would say, because Jesus was Jewish, Jesus is black. So he wants to sort of appropriate Jesus's Jewish identity to say, well, you know, what it meant to be a Jew in the first century was to be sort of marginalized and oppressed and, you know, an outsider. And, and that's very much what the African-American experience has been in America. So there's this sort of, again, appropriation of that. So, so it's interesting. I don't know. Um, there might be some that would bristle at the notion of, you know, Jesus, the resurrected Jew or, or whatever. Um, but my sense is more that, um, especially as this is becoming an increasingly common uh, sort of Christian theology conversation, uh, there are there are those who would just take that statement or that acknowledgement in a very different direction uh, than maybe what I'm trying to do here. But I think it's, I mean, and I would say this is overall a very positive thing, even if it is appropriated in different ways, um, that there's becoming a, a much more universal recognition that like, yeah, Jesus was Jewish and that we have to reckon with that in some way. Yeah. This is a big historical question, which you address early in the book. You say that there was a, quote, intimate connection of God, Israel, and Torah. Uh, that was, it was solid up until the 17th century. However, you know, however that intimate connection was characterized. Uh, but that in the 17th century, it, it, it broke up in a new way. Uh, what, what happened there, and how was Judaism then characterized? After that, mm -hmm. I know those are huge questions, but, yeah. but, but if you give us a few minutes on, on that historical process. Yeah, I mean, it was just sort of, I mean, the, the connection between the Jewish people, the people of Israel and Torah as this sort of way of life that characterized that people was really unchallenged until you get into modernity with the Enlightenment. And, and sort of for the first time, you have this this notion whereby a Jew um, can be a Jew who doesn't live by this kind of all-encompassing way of life of the Jewish people. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's the emergence of the nation state, there's the Jews who are trying to just be good Frenchmen or Germans or, or whatever that might look like. And that is then, you know, again, kind of for the first time, although there was some variety or variation in what Jewish practice looked like, um, you have Jews just sort of wholesale shedding that uh, a, a, largely as an attempt to kind of fit in and, and be able to, 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 in some cases, ride, rise to prominence in these new, newly formed nation states. And again, all of that is, is uh, a product of the Enlightenment, where you have this sort of skepticism cast on uh, religion in a major way, and you have new pathways opening towards, you know, for the first time you get the kind of priority of the individual, right? All of this also in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so there's much more like a Jew thinking of themselves as an individual person as opposed to a part of the people of Israel. So you get mm -hmm. these all of, you know, Judaism kind of explodes into all of these different branches and expressions of Judaism in, in, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, 
where all of a sudden it kind of becomes possible and even like in vogue to, to think in new ways or to kind of cast off, you know, the laws of kosher eating and, and all these different things, which, you know, modern Judaism is very much a product of that today, where you have different streams of Judaism, different streams within the streams of Judaism. Um, but that really, I mean, while there were, you know, kind of different camps, even in first century Judaism and, and, and subsequent iterations uh, of Judaism, um, this is kind of a new thing where you have all of these different definitions of what it means to be a Jew. Hmm. Um, and there becomes this phenomenon of like the secular Jew, you know, the Jew who doesn't really have much to do with Judaism, but is still very much a part of the, the Jewish people in, in some in some way. Um, so that very much sets the backdrop for a lot of the conversations uh, that 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 now take place in the Jewish world. Um, and I think in 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 an interesting way, it has allowed Christians to wrestle with the people of Israel or this concept of sort of God's covenant with Israel without wrestling with with what the Torah has always historically meant for that people. So one of the things that, um, I'm trying to hone in on in the book, uh, and it's and it's a question that's formulated very powerfully by Catholic theologian Bruce Marshall, which is, wait a second, if Christian theology wants to wrestle with the people of Israel, we kind of part and parcel of that is wrestling with this thing called the Torah, which is God's directives for living to this covenant people. So I'm trying to kind of recouple those things in a theological sense. Um, in the way that Bruce Marshall and, and other scholars do in order to sort of wrestle with the entirety of God's covenant with Israel, which I would argue, as you as you said in the question, is intimately bound to the practice of Torah. Yeah. So this wasn't, when, when I first saw the date, I was thinking, oh, the, the Reformation. This wasn't mm -hmm. the rise of, of Protestantism that, that uh, recast... A, that, that broke the intimate connection, not at all. I don't think so, but I think it's related. I mean, I think the Enlightenment sort of um, like almost necessarily is grows out of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, the Protestant Reformation kind of throws enough things that were sort of seen as solid and authoritative into doubt. And then it kind of, I mean, in the way that I understand history, it sort of spirals from there such that you then end up with this much more widespread movement of the enlightenment but but like i said i'm not sure that it would have happened in the same way had the protestant reformation not kind of predated it and so all of these questions as they apply specifically to the jewish world you know the haskalah is like the you know the the the, the jewish world's wrestling with the enlightenment um, and i think it's all very connected to some of the themes some of the key themes that we see emerging in the protestant reformation okay Let, let's jump ahead then to the new conversation to to carl bart uh, what was his doctrine of Israel and, and the church? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's it's notable, and this is kind of one of the reasons I highlight him so so heavily in the book, uh, to just say that he he you know sort of before we assess his doctrine of Israel uh, and the church or his doctrine of Israel that he had one that he had a very robust doctrine of Israel, um, and I think part of it is because he was a dedicated student of the Bible, you know, and he just sort of sees that in Scripture you can't really get around this covenant. Um, he also lived, um, you know, through both world wars, so he's seeing how uh, anti-Semitism is playing out in the 20th century, so, so mm -hmm. he begins to sort of wrestle with these questions, and he ends up 
um, I think in a really significant way, bringing that set of questions back onto the, the sort of table for, for Christian reflection, but he doesn't get it all right. I mean, what he ends up doing is kind of portraying Israel in a very negative light, uh, juxtaposed to the church, which is portrayed in a much more positive light. But he does that in order to emphasize the enduring nature of God's election. So even though uh, Israel is kind of this blind, failing, fumbling people of God, they are still the people of God because they are incapable of sort of wresting themselves from God's election. So he's trying to use it in a positive way. He's trying to say, look, no matter how far this covenant people drifts from God, they're still sort of held in God's embrace, uh, which for him, you know, is, is, is trying to magnify Christology and election and all of these really powerful Christian themes. But he ends up like a little bit throwing Israel under the bus in doing so. Um, and he's been critiqued pretty heavily by this. Um, Catherine Zonderegger is a, is a theologian who has critiqued him. Michael Vishagrad is an Orthodox Jewish theologian who had this fascination with Karl Barth, but also kind of, you know, pressed him on, wait a second, Israel's not always failing and fumbling. There are moments of Israel being the faithful covenant people of God. So he ends up having this rather negative portrait of Israel, um, again, in the service of his Christology and his doctrine of election. But but in doing so, he, he, he still managed to sort of bring it back into the conversation uh, in a way that Christian theology um, hadn't really been doing. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you lay out, Bart, as saying, among other things, that the suicide of Ju- Judas signified uh, Israel, the end of Israel, which was in turn realized in the destruction of Jerusalem. Is that is that part of his his uh, his, his drawback there? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, these very kind of negative symbols uh, and images and figures throughout the history. I mean, Judas. Come on, it doesn't get much worse than that. But that's sort of his point. Like, uh, no matter how apostate uh, this you know covenant people is, like Judas, he wants to say they still do not escape from being and remaining within the election of God. So, and, and yes, the destruction of Jerusalem plays into that. So he, so again, this very, um, negative portrait, I mean, and he uses language like, um, you know, these kind of polarizing language, negative, positive, um, rejected, accepted sort of, sort of tropes, uh, again, in the service of saying, that's how amazing God's election is that, that, that even, you know, Israel, which sort of represents Judas in this way is not outside the, 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 again, the, the sort of embrace of God's election, but it's very powerful and very off-putting uh, language that he uses. Um, and, and I think he, he rightfully is critiqued for that. Yeah. 
if we look at the person of Jesus, according to Bart, wherein lies the Jewishness of him? Yeah, I mean, he he wants to talk about how how Jesus uh, sort of um, embodies what Israel couldn't. So Israel, so Jesus becomes faithful Israel, right? I mean, for Bart very much presses into to. I mean, his his thought in general is very Christocentric. It's very built on uh, the person of Christ, who for him again is it kind of ultimately represents faithful Israel, right? Jesus kind of comes in where Israel failed and succeeds. Uh, and so, so, so Jesus kind of encapsulates Israel and, and in some ways kind of redirects Israel towards faithfulness in himself. Uh, and so he, he wants to sort of connect. Jesus becomes this sort of bridging figure between, you know, the, 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 the people of Israel, which is portrayed pretty negatively and, and the church, which is portrayed very positively. And they are whole, held together um, in the, the person and the work uh, and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. You see Barth insisting that to identify God's will too closely with an ethical system is to instrumentalize God's will too much, to deny God freedom. Is this one of Barth's criticisms specifically of Israel, of Judaism? It's his, yes, it's his criticism of rabbinic Judaism. And so, I mean, Barth... You know, I, I think especially of Bart's context, Bart is living, you know, it, probably at this point in his writing through World War II, and he's very uh, cautious and, um, and, and wary of any kind of ism, right? So socialism, communism, Nazism. Yeah. He's, he's, he's wanting uh, not to equate uh, Christian theology or truth with these you know, movements or ideologies that, that are that are gaining a lot of power in the world. And so he wants to allow God a certain kind of freedom uh, that isn't like nailed down in an ideological system, which makes a lot of sense in his context. But he ends up pinning that against rabbinic Judaism, which he sees as an ism, right? It's a it's sort of this nailed down um, airtight system of of praxis and he and he kind of lumps it together with these other isms and thereby critiques it. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, it, again, it, it, it informs his critique of rabbinic Judaism, which goes right in line with his critique of, of the people of Israel who have, you know, to have this sort of blinded wayward um, trajectory. Uh, and, and again, it, 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 it kind of ends up cutting against um, a, a positive assessment of, of the people of Israel, even though I think his thought ends up being sort of taken in that way. But yes, he does have this strong critique from a sort of ethical standpoint um, of, of Judaism as a system, as a religious system. Um, and I don't think he's entirely fair in his categorization of Judaism. I think there's actually a lot more um, freedom and and debate and movement and dynamism within Jewish tradition, but he kind of pins it as this kind of static, antiquated, um, overly rigid system that then allows him to sort of put it in this category with other things that he's critiquing. Okay. Who was Franz Rosenzweig? 
Yeah, Rosenzweig was very much a contemporary of Karl Barth. They were actually born in the same year, 1886. Um, and, and Rosenzweig was Jewish, born into a minimum, minimally observant Jewish family, you know, kind of a product of the Enlightenment, as we spoke about earlier. Um, and he actually had an interesting sort of brush with Christianity through his cousin, who uh, had be- had converted to Christianity, which was sort of the only option for, for centuries. You were either a Jew or a Christian. Um, and so Rosenzweig had this uh, kind of deep intrigue for a number of reasons. He, there's a, a book published that's letters back and forth between him and his, you know, now converted to Christianity cousin. Um, and then he ends up going to Yom Kippur services, Day of Atonement services, uh, and having this very powerful encounter with Judaism, whereby he becomes an Orthodox Jew, uh, which is not how he was raised. He sort of steers away from conversion to Christianity, feels like what he had been intrigued by in Christianity, he ultimately ends up sort of finding within Judaism. And then he he becomes uh, this really uh, fascinating figure who deeply espouses Judaism and Jewish tradition, but still kind of holds on to this encounter that he had with Christianity. So um, his magnum opus is called The Star of Redemption. Um, and he writes about, it's a very philosophical uh, piece, uh, but he, and, and he sort of penned it on postcards from the trenches in World War I. Um, and, 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 and he talks about Judaism and Christianity as these complementary religious systems rather than competitive. So in Rosenzweig's uh, understanding, redemption requires both Judaism and Christianity. And he, he construes them as being separate, which is kind of in line with his own experience of them and in line with the way that they very much were in his day and age, but as both being sort of movements of God that are that, that God is using in in this sort of path toward redemption. So um, again, in, in different ways than Bart, he's very much a pioneer in starting to think um, along new trajectories about Judaism and Christianity and the relationship between them. He, so, so on that score, he asks that Christ, Christology be, as you paraphrase it, reconceived through the light of Israel. What does that entail? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, it, he's fascinating and his writing is very, um, there's sort of a lot of allusions in his writing to sort of New Testament scriptures that I parse out in my chapter in the book on Rosenzweig, sort of saying, wait a second, this sounds a lot like, you know, this verse from John, for example. Um, so he doesn't have like a really fleshed out Christology. Um, and he does end up uh, sort of leaving Judaism and Christianity as separate from one another, which is which is kind of different than where I end up wanting to 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 sort of conceive of how I want to conceive of them. Um, but he does, again, in very, very subtle ways, um, draw these fascinating uh, and very penetrating connections between, uh, Jesus and the Jewish people. And again, it's all sort of muted in his writing. And, and as far as I know, it's never really been drawn out and exposited by anybody in the, in the way that I'm trying to do it in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some, there's some undercurrents in his thought that I think are very powerful uh, in terms of, again, sort of poking holes at these uh, airtight conceptions of Judaism and Christianity, some of which he even espouses. So 
uh, you know, there's this interesting tension in his thought between the categories that he himself puts forth. And then, as I said, these kind of subtle hints at him even starting to, to, to maybe think along lines of, wait a second, but Jesus wasn't separate from the Jewish people. You know, Jesus was very much part of the Jewish people, but, but sort of Christianity eventually sort of claims Jesus as their own, mm-hmm. and he goes with that. But it's, it's clear that he's also perceiving something much deeper, uh, for example, in, in the New Testament. Uh, would it mean, say, understanding the crucifixion in light of the broader suffering of the Jewish people? I think so. So, so later, um, sort of post-Holocaust Jewish theology very much goes in that direction. Um, and in fact, on the cover of my book, Healing the Schism, is an is a painting by Mark Chagall uh, of the crucifixion of Christ, kind of overlooking the Exodus from Egypt, where where you have Chagall who did a whole series of paintings of, of crucifixion paintings, where they are all quite clearly portraying. Uh, the, the the vocation of the Jewish people. So you don't get that explicitly in Rosenzweig's theology. And Rosenzweig died young. Um, he died in 1925. So he, uh, you know, it, it's 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 unbelievable and tragic to think of how much more he, he died in 1929. I'm sorry, um, to think of how much more he could have worked on. You know, how much more he could have written had he lived longer. But but I think that these post-Holocaust Jewish voices are very much kind of tapping into themes that Rosenzweig was already picking up on, again, pre-Holocaust, and those themes just develop and, and expand and sort of mushroom in the aftermath of the Holocaust, where you get these very explicit connections between the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the Jewish people. What is Rosenzweig's conception of, quote, the Jewish man? And, and that's capitalized, right? Yeah, I mean, again, he, he has these sort of, um, he, he sort of has, it's, it's like a type for him. He has a, a sort of a type of, of, of a Jewish, uh, you know, the Jewish man or Judaism, and he has a type of Christianity. And he talks about, again, for him, it's all about the ways in which they complement each other. So he very much presses into this connection between the people of Israel and the practice of Torah that we touched on earlier. Um, and yet he thinks that there's a danger for the Jewish people in that they can be, and this is sort of in this, the Jewish man, right? They can become too insular, too turned inward by this devotion, this rightful devotion to Jewish practice. And so Christianity is then the sort of outward movement of truth that you see Judaism embodying, encapsulating in its purest form and Christianity, sort of the Christian man, the task is then to sort of bring that revelation outward um, mm-hmm. to to um, transmit it to the nations, really. And so he he portrays uh, again the two traditions in these um, kind of separate but connected ways, where each needs the other to ultimately be faithful to God, which which is fascinating. Um, and there's some history of that in in Jewish tradition, but Rosenzweig is the one who. Um, really dials into this deep and fundamental connection and interdependence between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, so people who followed in the wake of Barth and Rosenzweig uh, trying to create this, this new Jewish-Christian encounter, the, the big problem is overcoming the, some of the stark doctrinal differences. 
-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, they they do, do they sort of we're going to agree to disagree here, but over here, we've got lots of areas where we can talk. Mm -hmm. Is that kind mm -hmm. of the, the the approach to things? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fascinating. You have, you know, you have World War II and the Holocaust, and then in the immediate aftermath of that, you have the founding of the State of Israel, uh, both events of which kind of caused Christian theology to sort of halt and say, wait a second, like, we've gotten something wrong, you know, like, how did this happen? And what are we to make of this newly founded State of Israel, which, you know, Christian Christian theologians like Martin Luther were like, forget it, you're never going to be back in your land. And then all of a sudden in the mid 20th century, this is what happens. And so you get the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s, which really begins to set a new trajectory of the church relating to the Jewish people. And even, you know, Vatican documents, there's there's some, you know, some hints towards replacement theology. Uh, it's not entirely clear, but you get all kinds of uh, ways in which Jews and Christians are encountering one another anew, largely spurred by Christians kind of rethinking the, the, the latent anti-Judaism and in some ways anti-Semitism uh, that has been present in Christian theology for centuries. And so you get all kinds of, you know, partnerships and alliances between Jews and Christians that, that sort of pop up in the aftermath of, of you know, these events, the, the Holocaust and founding the modern state of Israel. And what I'm most interested in the book is the ways in which that's playing out in theological spheres. So how are Jews and Christians encountering one another theologically? And ultimately, how is that encounter um, reshaping the, the, the self-understandings of those who are involved in these dialogues. And so, yes, there's very complicated um, areas of disagreement or discussion, uh, things like the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, which seems to sort of fly in the face of the oneness of God um, uh, from a Jewish perspective. Um, but then you also have, again, I think this growing sense of um, the way in which uh, particularly Christian tradition has been damaged by this divorce from Judaism. And, and maybe, I mean, you know, Jewish scholars will even say, how do we, how do we learn the most we can about second temple Judaism? We read the new Testament, you know, so there's this kind of understanding that, um, a lot can be learned really about each tradition by engaging the other. And, and, and hopefully through that, I mean, we do, Hopefully, the the goal would be some kind of healing of the of the schism. You know, coming back to the title of the book, uh, that and and the and the damage that's been done over the centuries uh, by these traditions, sort of tearing themselves apart from one another and conceiving of themselves as completely disconnected and 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 again, sort of mutually exclusive to the other. As they proceed, you speak of being conscious of, quote, the threat of syncretism. What is that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Judaism and Christianity have been understood as two separate traditions for so long. That's just sort of how they, uh, they, they be begin to maintain some kind of structural stability by defining themselves over against one another. And so then there becomes, you know, I think when I, when I reference that in the book, I'm quoting Jewish theologian, David Novak, who is concerned that we, that, and this is ultimately his critique of Messianic Judaism, that it's, that it's this un, un, um, uh, unhealthy, untrue syncretism between Judaism and Christianity. He very much kind of wants to 
preserve and he and and historically speaking there's grounds to do so the the separateness between Judaism and Christianity David Novak says you are one is either a Jew or they are a Christian one either worships God through Jesus Christ or through you know God's covenant with Israel and the Torah uh, and so he still maintains this very kind of separate du- duality between the traditions whereby syncretism becomes a threat, right? It becomes a threat to each tradition's self-understanding if we're kind of playing fast and loose and taking elements of this tradition and elements of this tradition. And, 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 and for someone like Novak, he would say that's eroding the, the, the sort of truth and stability and coherence of each tradition. And that's sort of exactly the, the construal that I'm trying to um, push back against and say, but wait, like if we read the New Testament, if we look at the parting of the ways, um, that's, a, that's maybe an accurate reading of the way that history has gone, but can we challenge that very history and the conclusions that have been drawn as a result of it? The book is Healing the Schism, Karl Barth, Franz Vosenzweig, and the New Jewish Christian Encounter. Professor Rosner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.